Well, I know your Bibles are open. We are in Luke chapter 6 as we continue our odyssey through that long book. I don't think we'll take as long as one man under whom I worked. And uh, I remember a college student coming up to this different part of the country and a college student coming up to me on commencement weekend. And he said, Pastor Hughes has been preaching through the book of Luke my entire time in college. So hopefully we'll get this done uh, within four years. But uh, anyway, we are taking our time. And you'll notice that because of the passage that we'll be looking at this morning. Luke chapter 6, verses 12 through 16. Luke chapter 6, verses 12 through 16. I'll read and you follow along. In these days when he went out to the mountain to pray... I'm sorry. In these days, he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve, whom he named apostles, Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew his brother, and James and John, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot and Judas the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. Thus far God's word. Well, when Luke wrote this book that bears his name, and at which we've been looking since last April, uh, he had at least two things in mind. First, his uh, target audience, a man named Theophilus, and second, his purpose, which is clearly stated in chapter 1, verse 4, that you, Theophilus, may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. And one of those things, if not the thing about which Luke wanted Theophilus to be certain, was Jesus' absolute authority. Authority that was established in chapters 1 and 2 by way of his birth, uh, in chapter 3 by way of his baptism and his pedigree, and then in chapter 4 by way of his uh, temptation in the desert and then his fulfillment of Scripture. So in the early chapters of Luke, the absolute authority of Jesus is established. Uh, From that point on, Uh, Jesus' uh, absolute authority is expressed. And he does that in a variety of ways. Uh, He expresses his authority over the spiritual world. So in chapter 4, you find Jesus exercising single demons out of individuals. But by chapter 8, he's exercising multiple demons out of a single individual. He expresses his authority over the physical world. So in uh, chapter 4, he heals uh, Simon's mother-in-law from a fever. But in Luke chapter 8, he heals a little girl from death to life. (laughs) That's control. That's authority. He expresses his authority over the natural world. Uh, over schools of fish in chapter 5, storms at sea in chapter 8, the multiplication and the distribution of food uh, that we'll see in chapter 9. And Jesus' absolute authority is expressed in his teaching. 
as we see him correcting man-made perversions of God's law, like those at which we looked a couple of weeks ago uh, concerning fasting and the Sabbath, and those at which we'll look beginning next Sunday through the outset of Advent uh, in the blessings and the woes contained in Jesus' Sermon on the Plain, uh, verses 17 through 49. So as we come to our passage this morning, uh, we see two things that further express Jesus' authority, and and they're today's uh, two main points. First, in verse number 12, uh, we see Jesus' priority on prayer and his humble example that even though in, in authority, Jesus was entirely under authority. And then in verses 13 through 16, we see Jesus' selection of the 12 and the reminder that those chosen by Jesus all those years ago, way back then, are important to us now because of their crucial roles as witnesses of the life and the ministry, the death and the resurrection of Jesus. So that's the way forward this morning, the priority of prayer and the importance of the apostles. So let's begin with uh, Jesus' priority on prayer and his humble example that even though he was in authority, he lived entirely under authority. Uh, the priority that Jesus placed on prayer is, is really rather remarkable. I mean, uh, on the one hand, this is uh, Jesus the Son of God, uh, the second person of the Trinity, uh, the one uh, for whom all things were made and by whom all things hold together. But on the other hand, we need to regularly remind ourselves that while Jesus was 100% God, he was also 100% man, human. I got a couple questions for you here. What, what is the great sin of humanity? It's, it's declaring independence from God, isn't it? What's the great sign of one's humility? Well, it's declaring dependence on God, right? As a man, as a human being, Jesus lived a life of entire dependence upon God, and that by way of prayer. We've already seen this in chapter 4, verse 42, then again in 5.16. We're going to see it again before uh, the book is over, most notably in the shadow of the cross, when Jesus knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Jesus prayed for what he wanted. He didn't want to die, but he goes on, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Total dependence, total submission, and that from a man with total authority, as we've already seen expressed in spades here by Luke. So in principle and practice, Jesus was a man of prayer, one in authority, but also under authority. But the question remains, what what exactly did Jesus' prayer life look like? And here we Uh, get a glimpse of it in chapter 12. So let's look at that one more time. It says, in these days, Jesus went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer 
to God. Now, I want you to notice three things here from verse number 12. First, notice when Jesus prayed. And it says here that he prayed in these days. What days? Well, they're the days at which we've been looking over over previous weeks. So in these days of personal rejection, back in chapter 4. In these days of physical exertion, chapter 5. In these days of gospel opposition, in chapter 6. In these days, it was Jesus' intention to pray. And that's an intention, I think, with which all of us here can identify An intention that's kindled by some sort of challenge in your life. Maybe those like Jesus. Rejection, exertion, opposition. uh, Fill in your challenge du jour. But too easily extinguished by our own hurry. By our own discouragement. By our own fatigue. And that's why Jesus' example here is so bracing because instead of succumbing to his challenges, we see that Jesus acted on his intention to pray and actually went to pray. So second thing we see there in verse 12 is where Jesus went to pray. And it says there, he went out to the mountain to pray. And I can identify with Jesus on this one because when I was at grad school, that is where I went. I went to the mountains, I'd get in my 66 bug, my metallic green bug, and I'd bomb on up the 605 freeway and get on the 210, head west until I got to Angeles Crest Highway and on up until I found a stand of of, uh, pine trees or cedars and I'd park and I'd pray. And truth is, all these decades later, I, from time to time, will still do the same thing. Just a few months ago, I got in my car, and I drove up to uh, Eaton Saddle, which is just below Mount Wilson. Mount Wilson's the one that when you see the mountains to the north of us and all those transmitters on that one mountain, that's Mount Wilson. Eaton Saddle's just to the left. And I pulled in there, and uh, for over two hours, I just quietly sat there. I drank in the grandeur of the San Gabriel wilderness, and I, I thoughtfully read portions of scripture and I reflectively prayed and truth be told I fell asleep along the way but uh, that doesn't serve to uh, make my point but it shows that prayer takes effort doesn't it now that Jesus went to pray on a mountain is merely a descriptive matter it's it's not a prescriptive one that that is to say when it's time to pray you don't have to go to a mountain Rather, what seems to be clear is that from time to time, Jesus got away to some remote place and prayed. Here it's on a mountain. In the book of Matthew, it's in a garden. In Luke chapter 4, it's what's described as a desolate place. We get into Luke chapter 5, and Luke tells us Jesus is is regularly looking for these desolate places in which to uh, put himself. One scholar points out that as the tumult rose around Jesus' ministry, and it's rising here in chapter 6. He looked for quiet places. And so my question for you this morning is, where's your quiet place? Where do you go to get away, to be quiet before the Lord? When I was in college, 
And finding a, finding a quiet place on a busy college campus is not easy. I found it on a landing uh, at the top of a stairwell in my freshman residence hall, Fisher Hall. Uh, a friend of mine used to find his quiet place in his car on the outskirts of the Brea Mall uh, parking lot. That's where he'd go to pray. Uh, I have a friend who um, finds uh, quiet at St. Andrew's Abbey, which is a religious community, sans Wi-Fi, sans cell service, which is out in the desert town of Valyermo. Now, to be sure, all of these examples come with their inconveniences, but that's the point. <laughs> Whether it's on a, a, a mountain or in a garden or out in a desolate place to which Jesus went, uh, all being inconvenient, the benefit of locating a quiet place far outweighs the inconvenience of getting there if we realize the purpose for which we've come. Which brings us to the last thing that we see here in verse number 12. We've already seen when Jesus went to pray and where Jesus went to pray. Third, we see what Jesus did when he went to pray. And it says there, and all night, he continued in prayer to God. So when Jesus went to pray, he prayed. Uh, here he prayed at nighttime. In Matthew 14, he prayed in the daytime. Uh, here he stays up late to pray. In Mark chapter 1, he gets up early to pray. And all of this apart from the three times that Jews were prescribed to pray, according to Psalm 55, even in the morning, Psalm 88, even in the evening, Psalm 141, in each case, when Jesus prayed or went to pray, he prayed. Now, now, again, that Jesus prayed all night is merely a descriptive matter, not a prescriptive one. That is to say, when you pray, you don't have to pray all night. Last week, last Sunday morning, Josh Moody mentioned uh, Charles Simeon, who prayed each morning from 4 to 8 a.m., and he left it there. Uh, what he could have gone on to tell you, though, is that uh, Charles Simeon was neither married nor did he have any children and was therefore able to enjoy this uh, uh, leisurely prerogative of a lifelong bachelor. But as one cultivates a habit of prayer, capacity for prayer increases so that someday you may be able to pray for four hours like Simeon or all night like Jesus. Uh, George Matheson, he's a Victorian oldie, uh, wrote something like, uh, the most difficult thing to do at the beginning of any day is to pray. Uh, the second most difficult thing to do is to stop praying. When we make prayer our practice and we begin to actually pray, we find our capacity for it increases. Well, be that as it may, here, the clear example before us is when Jesus intended to pray and went out to pray for no matter how long, he prayed. He, he did what he'd come to do. He'd stuck to his plan. Now, if your prayer life is anything like mine, then it can sometimes go like this. I have all good intentions to pray. 
fact, I think we all have good intentions to pray, but do we act on those intentions? Well, sometimes we do, and we'll go to that quiet place. For me, it's the blue chair in the living room or the club chair up in my book shed or the front seat of my car overlooking the San Gabriel wilderness. But because of either sleepiness or distraction, I um, never pray. Uh, A a friend of mine uh, faced the same challenge. He happened to write his down. Let me read it to you. As I begin to pray, I pray for my mother. And as I think about her, I envision my family home where she still lives. The vision includes my high school hot rod, a great primered 41 Ford with racing slicks and the pinstriped epigram, swing low, sweet chariot, just under the driver's window. Next, I'm behind the wheel, heading down Beach Boulevard for Huntington Beach and some body surfing. What began so properly and spiritually ends up being a stroll down memory lane, or even worse, a frenetic run through my worries. I imagine you can identify with that. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. So what does verse 12 teach us then? Well, well, it doesn't prescribe when we should pray or where we should pray or how we should pray. It does describe for us and with certainty that prayer was important to Jesus. It was important that he get away periodically to pray. It was important that he approach the crucial moments of his life with prayer. In a moment, we'll see that in the choosing of the 12. Uh, In chapter 9, we're going to see that at the transfiguration. And in chapter 24, we'll see that as Jesus approaches the cross. This passage teaches us that Jesus, who has The Son of God was clearly in authority over creation, was also the Son of Man. And by way of prayerful dependence, was clearly under the authority of the Creator. Or to to put it in the parlance of John 15, at which we were looking last week, this is an example of how Jesus abided in the vine. This, this, This was his home. This is where he lived. This is the thing, the place from which he drew his strength, his perspective, his peace. If this kind of prayerful dependence was true of Jesus, and it was, how much more so should it be of us, especially for those of us who are in places of authority, either at home or at church or at work? Prayerlessness leads to imperiousness. What's that? Haughtiness. Arrogance. The attitude that I can do it. I don't need anybody else's help. But prayerfulness leads to humility, and humility opens the floodgates to God's grace. Grace upon grace upon grace. Well, as we move on into the the, the second half of our passage here, verses 13 through 16, Luke uh, records what it is for which Jesus prayed. Now, no doubt he prayed for other things along the way, but uh, this was certainly the main thing for which he prayed. Uh, So we find it here in 
Beginning in chapter 13, it's main point number two, and that's the importance of the apostles. And we read there, and when day came, he called the disciples and chose from them 12, whom he named apostles. Now, there are three things that are happening in this verse. Number one, we see that Jesus had a big group of disciples out of which he called or chose a smaller one. In fact, Luke reveals that Jesus had three concentric circles of disciples. We're going to see in chapter 10, he had a group of 72. Here we see he had a group of 12. And in chapter uh, 9, we'll see that he he had a, 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 a more intimate group of three. So, Jesus' ministry, uh, while it was organic, to be sure, it was also organized. It was strategic. Uh, It was planned. In fact, I was uh, uh, showing a book the other day to someone in my office. It's an oldie moldy, but well worth your time. Um, uh, A.B. Bruce, Alexander Blameyers Bruce, The Training of the Twelve. And it shows uh, Jesus' thoughtfulness in choosing and sending these 12 men. Second, we see that Jesus chose the 12. Uh, They didn't volunteer. Uh, There were no applications to fill out in order to be considered. These men were prayerfully conscripted by Jesus. In fact, in John 15, 6, Jesus reminds them, you didn't choose me. I chose you. And in a moment, we'll see the special importance of that fact. Third thing we see in this verse is that Jesus named the 12 as apostles. In in Scripture, naming is a sign of authority. And so you can take that all the way back to the beginning of the Bible. In Genesis, uh, God names man, man names the animals, and in their naming, they're exercising authority over those whom they name. It was true then, it's true now. Uh, If they're your children, you have the prerogative to name them. Uh, I have three daughters, and along with my wife, we named each one. Uh, My grandfather had a business. Because he had authority over his business, he named it after himself. So if you're an authority, you have the prerogative to name. In this passage, it's Jesus who holds the authority and thereby names the 12 as special ministers on his behalf and even renames Simon, giving him the name Peter as one on whom he would later build his church. But I want you to especially notice this. Jesus' authority over the 12, as seen in his choosing and naming of them in verses 13 through 16, is exercised under the Father's authority over him is already seen in verse number 12. In Luke's second volume, so he's doing uh, the Gospel of Luke. He's got a whole second volume called the Acts of the Apostles. Uh, Jesus' submissive and dependent prayer, it becomes the standard by which all church leaders are selected. Acts 1, Acts 6, Acts 13, 13, excuse me, Acts 14. Also in Acts, we learn that prayer is the primary responsibility of a church leader and, in specific, an elder. And that's something that we try to follow 
here at Grace. Jenny mentioned that we're a church of prayer. Uh, we don't do that perfectly, but we try. Among the elders, one staff elder meeting a month is devoted entirely to prayer. One shepherding elder meeting a month, that's the whole elder board, is de devoted to hearing from and praying for our leaders as well as those to whom they specifically minister. Uh, in our last shepherding elders meeting, we had four different people who requested prayer from us and we laid hands on them and anointed them with oil. Again, we could do better, but we're doing the best we can right now and we invite you to join us and especially for the selection of the new full-time elder of discipleship. We're in the process of taking applications right now for that. Well, who were these men that were chosen by Jesus? <clears throat> On the one hand, except for Judas Iscariot, they were pretty much all identical in their makeup. I mean, they were from a rural setting. They were uneducated men. They were unknown uh, for the most part. They weren't wealthy. They weren't well-connected. They weren't members of the religious establishment. But on the other hand, they were all different, each one in their own way. Some worked with their hands, others didn't. Uh, there was a skeptic in their midst, and in the end, they even had a traitor. One of the 12 worked for the government, and another one worked against the government. In fact, concerning those two, one commentator states, the differences between these two men exceed anything that might conceivably unite them, except for the authority, authoritative call of Jesus. I think that's a point that's highly instructive to us in this day of masks versus no masks, shots versus no shots, open borders versus closed borders. So with all their similarities, all their differences, Jesus called these men. And that call protected them. The, the surety of Jesus, it's like Kenny was saying, Jesus chose it, and he's the one who holds on to us. That, that call protected them through the remainder of Jesus' ministry so that he could prayerfully say to his father in John 17, 12, I've guarded them and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction that the scripture might be fulfilled. And after his death and resurrection and ascension, it was a call of Jesus with the help of the Holy Spirit that steeled the 12 to continue following Jesus as those who were called as, as ministers, because that's what an apostle is, one who is set out as a minister, as those who were called to preach, because that's the kind of ministry that these men were to have, but most of all as those who were called to preach that which they had witnessed, that which they had seen, that which they had beheld in their own presence. It's interesting, when Jesus chose these men, he was looking for one thing. He wasn't looking for uh, wealth. He wasn't looking for skill. He wasn't looking for pedigree. He was looking for men of character, truthful men, reliable men. Jesus chose men on whose backs the witness of what 
he did and said could be carried into the future. You see, the 12, they witnessed everything from the baptism of Jesus to the time of his ascension. They saw it all. And that's why the apostles not only were important to the founding of the church, but they continue to be important today. Uh, I I want you to consider these references. I'm going to read them to you. Uh, I'd encourage you to just copy down uh, the uh, references and then go back and and take a look at them sometime. This is from Luke's second volume, Acts of the Apostles. Acts 13.31, Luke writes, For many days after his resurrection, Jesus appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. Now, during those days, we learn in Acts 1.8 that Jesus said to the 12, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses. Chapter 2, verse 32, Peter declares, this Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. 3.15, Peter refers to the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. Chapter 5, verses 30 and 32, the apostles declared, the God of our fathers raised Jesus and we are witnesses to these things. Chapter 10, verse 39, Peter again announces, and we are witnesses of all that Jesus did. He was put to death by hanging on a tree, but God raised him up on the third day and made him to appear. Not to all the people, not Not everybody saw the risen Christ, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. The witness of the apostles is so important that Paul wrote to the Corinthian church, if Christ hasn't been raised, which is the very thing uh, of which they were witnesses, then Our preaching's in vain, your faith is in vain, and you're still in your sins. Now, to be sure, the apostles were chosen to to witness uh, the work of Christ. But as Rob Price so effectively pointed out last Sunday night, um, uh, in the last session of our, our Bible conference from John chapter 16, the apostles were also chosen by Christ to inscripturate that work, to write it down, to record it so that it could be known. This means, again, that the truthfulness of Scripture rides on the reliability of the apostles' witnesses. It's a witness that they saw firsthand. Uh, The apostle John puts it, couldn't put it more clearly than he does in 1 John uh, 1 through 4, that which we've heard We've seen with our eyes, we've looked upon it, have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. That's what we proclaim. And it was a witness just uh, not only for their immediate audience, but those of us here in this room as well. Uh, that's That's what Paul says. He says that the things that were written to the original audience, he said, weren't written for their sake alone, 
but for ours also, Romans chapter 4. To the church at Corinth, he said, now these things happened to them as an example, but were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the age has come, 1 Corinthians 10. It's a witness that's not only for us, but it's for others as well. This is the good news. This is the good news to be proclaimed. It's a news that Paul proclaimed to the Corinthian church. He says, I remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. He was buried. He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. So not only had they seen these things, but they happened in accordance with all that had been written up to that point in the Scriptures. So it's a witness for us. It's a witness for others, and it's a witness that cost all but one of the 12, their lives. Uh, four by crucifixion, two by stoning, others by sword, by spear, by saw, by axe. They staked their lives on what they saw. But that which they witnessed was stronger than death. So that their words, uh, though dead, yet they still speak. God's words still speak to us, through us, for the sake of the gospel and the advancement of God's kingdom. Well, Luke wrote these things that Theophilus might be certain. Certain about the priority of Jesus' prayer life, the priority he placed on prayer, and about the importance of the twelve as ones who were prayerfully chosen by Jesus, confidently sent out as witnesses of his life and ministry, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension, and authoritatively commended for their testimony contained right here in the Scripture, by which we, we engage and evangelize our world, establish and equip our people, until by God's grace we're presented to him, complete in Christ, on the last day. Amen.